Hi, this is Mel Fulton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Literati Glitterati. Championing stylish wordsmiths and sterling conversation, it's a weekly book show that loves a good story well told. Literati Glitterati is broadcast live on Triple R each Wednesday from midday till 1pm. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Joining me today, we have another primo lineup of some of the world's most stylish wordsmiths. Uh, we're going to talk about their books, their stories, and reading in general. And we're going to point you in the direction of some top books to get your hands on, which you might like to pick up from your local library or from the bookshop. It's literati glitterati time. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and, of course, to Bunjil, the great creation spirit. The colonial project is an ongoing one, but this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Um, today on Literati Glitterati, we're taking a look at the debut illustrated essay collection from Sarah Firth, Everything Eventually Connects, and the debut Bildungsroman from Elise Esther Hurst, One Day We're All Going to Die. Triple R. On Literati Glitterati, my name is Mel Fulton and I am absolutely delighted to introduce our first guest on the show this week. Um, our first guest is Melbourne-based cartoonist, artist, writer and recorder Sarah Firth. Her debut collection of eight illustrated essays, eventually, oh sorry, Everything Eventually Connects, is out now through Nakia Louis Joan Press and it is playful, generous and spirited, a tour through Sarah's mind with detours into life, the universe and everything. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Hello, lovely to be here. What a treat. Um, Sarah, I understand that this collection was eight years in the making, so congratulations extra especially to you on its release. Yes, it's been a, it's been a journey. Um, I'm so aware that in light of that, probably no one can describe this book quite as well as you can. Can you tell us what is Everything Eventually Connects? Oh, I, still, I still don't have a very good good concise answer for this question but um I'll have a stab uh it is eight interconnected essays about living and questions about living and how to make sense of things and get along uh as a as a you know flawed person in the world that's a wonderful way of describing it now these are beautifully illustrated as well by you um can you tell us a little bit about um I mean, something that delighted me as I was reading them was the little sparks that get you started, you know. Um, in the office today, I was telling um, a bunch of the people, you know, maybe you'll be going for a run and you'll see a baby carriage and you'll look in a little bit closer and see a cat and go, hang on, I wasn't expecting to see that. Where does that come from? And that will prompt an entire line of inquiry into things like confirmation bias, into, you know, the way that we look for things and how that reinforces perhaps what we already think. Um, another one that I love is an argument that you have with your partner about the way you cut an orange. Um, tell us, what gets you started? I, I just, as a segue, that, that sequence with arguing about the correct way to cut oranges, I get so many uh, messages from readers going, you've both got it wrong. The way to do it is this way. It's a very hot topic. Oh, man, I just it's love a- that you described cutting an orange equatorially. <laughs> I felt like that really justified my own approach at home. So thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I guess... 
this book is in lots of ways a portrait of my brain uh, and I just you know I'm neurodivergent I have a lot of very kind of associative wide-ranging thinking um, but at its heart like the tag I don't know if you call it tagline the subtitle of the book is eight essays on uncertainty and I guess for me I'm very interested in how um, you know really big questions about life and the world are embedded and living in the small things in the world as well and so I like I guess you could say it's philosophy uh, in a way um, but I'm interested in how that's relevant and alive in everyday life rather than big lofty questions and so for me they're kind of you know philosophical inquiries about yeah how do we know what we know and how do we know what to do and what's right and what's wrong and you know what things mean those simple easy questions you know and so you start small and you go big mm. I'm really curious about how much do you know when you set upon this journey of inquiry? Like, do you know where the essay, where you want to get to? Do you know where it ends? Or do you start with the questions and write your way through it? Yeah, so I very much start with, um, well, I don't know, you could say like little glimmers of something or, or flavours or a pattern of something. And I'm, I really enjoy writing in a way that I find entertains me. Um, so I don't have a particularly structured way of writing I, you know, that's just me. Um, and so things are very emergent and I find that exciting and fun. And of course, when you write, you go through multiple editing processes and you cut out lots of bits and rework lots of bits. But initially for me, it's very, um, not stream of consciousness, like it's more intentional than that, but it is very kind of, you know, one thing leads to the next thing without a clear uh, plot or place that I'm going to. That makes sense. I mean, I think that these essays, to read them, um, they're incredibly generous and there's a spirit of curiosity about them, which I think is highly contagious. You know, it encourages the reader to ask questions and to research and to run alongside you with their own lines of questioning. Um, you know, an example of that, something that delighted me and that I loved was um, all of these little anecdotes about um, the natural world and about about various critters. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about um, about the bogon moth? I think we'll go ah. we'll go with because the bogon moth is kind of a guiding thread that that takes us through the collection. Yes, tell us what does the bogon moth mean to you? So the bogon moth, yes, it's a key motif in the book. Um, I guess that I have a personal interest in non-mammals or insects or other life forms that are uh, more different to humans that are harder to kind of anthropomorphize um, and so the moth to me is this kind of interface of mystery of how much of the world we don't really know and how much of ourselves we don't really know um, but also I'm quite interested in moths as a creature because symbolically people love butterflies but moths often have an association with difficulty death and this type of thing in, in many cultures and so moths are kind of uh, not appreciated as much, but they're a very important ecological sort of cornerstone insect. Um, and the other thing I love about bogong moths is similar to monarch butterflies, they are very sophisticated navigators. Uh, and to me, people think of moths as kind of silly you know, clumsy animals, but they're also incredibly sophisticated. And there's something about the moth to me that is some kind of a weird reflection of being a human, which is we're so sophisticated. We've done so much as a you know a species, and yet we can be so easily hijacked and um, distracted. And there's this very, you know, push-pull oscillation um, with being a, a human and navigating the world. So there's some kind of yeah mirror there with a moth um and there's lots of other layers about moths i could go into that are about you know connection to country and place and movement across 
the land and then also um, you know they're an endangered species now it's causing huge ecological issues um, and I feel like you know humans are not untethered from the natural world and you know extin- extinctions of animals will impact us um, and that's something I care a lot about yeah so there are there are species that ask and answer lots and lots of yeah. questions, I suppose. So within that, there is you know why am I so addicted to my phone? Where do I belong in the world? What is my place? Where should I be? What is my responsibility to other species? What is my responsibility to my fellow man? It's something that can kind of weave and guide you through um, through the collection, through the questions that you're yeah. asking yourself, and encourage us to kind of ask those questions. Yeah ourselves as well Hmm. um I guess I wanted to ask you we talked a little bit about research before about Hmm. asking those questions about sort of flying by the seat of your pants though not exactly um what is your process like in terms of um you know there are multiple layers of research present here um you know, there's obviously all this research that you've done into the Bogon moth, into various other species. There's lots of philosophical thinkers. There are writers present on the page. Um, you know, you share a lot of biographical information about yourself and your family. Um, how do you go about plucking these sources and these, um, you know, jolts of inspiration and incorporating them into your text? Yeah, so I guess I would say that with actual people in my life, um, it's very important to have their consent and, um, you know, everyone who's in this book has had their say on, you know, whether they like it or if they want to change, that kind of thing, because, you know, the relationships with actual people are more important to me than the book. Um, Secondly, I would say that, like, I love... Um, reading widely and I'll just come across things that just really stick with me and I often will write them on post-it notes or you know sort of revisit quotes or ideas and I'm a I really believe that you know the things that we come into contact with are what inform our thinking and our beliefs and um, so I really wanted to honor the different thinkers uh, through time who've influenced me Um, so that's partly why I have these kind of um, yeah other voices present in the book because to me they're the people I got the ideas from. I didn't come up with them myself. So there's some kind of, yeah, lineage there that I want to trace. Um, that said, getting the copyright approval for mm. all of the quotes was a like full-time job. Wow. <laughs> um, and, you know, it sounds bad, but I can understand why people plagiarize because to do it properly is such a thorough and expensive process, um, which I'm glad that I did. Mm. But, you know, I didn't anticipate how much work that would be. Yeah, wow. Um, And what about the self-work that you do? I mean, to pick up a copy of this marvellous book, um, there's a cartoon picture of yourself in the nude on the cover. Um, You know, this book goes into um, wonderful and extraordinary and generous detail about all aspects of your life, about packing up and moving out of your family home, about um, your sexuality and desire, about uh, the person that you are and the things that you love. Um, I loved reading the Desire Lines sexy <laughs> essay on the V-Line train to Castlemaine. Um, some teenage boys got on and sat behind me at Sunbury and I was like, I hope you look over my shoulder and read this. <laughs> Tell us, what was it like to write it and to draw them? Yeah. Yeah, so that's an interesting question. Sometimes people go, oh, oh, this book is so personal, how how did you do that? Like, how do you feel about it? And I guess I, it just comes back to, for me, I've read so many books that are incredibly generous and vulnerable about important and difficult things, and they have been so important to me um, to 
understand myself better, understand the world better. And I feel like that generosity is really valuable and a lot of people are too scared to do it or don't want to for very good reasons. Um, but I guess for me, I was very motivated by that. It, you know, I don't know if you'll call it story medicine, but it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes people talking about um, more personal things, honestly, can be really revelatory for you as a reader. And so this is me kind of giving back in a way that other writers have given to me. Um, me being naked on the cover, I didn't actually want to do that, but my um, editorial team were like, we need to make it very clear that this is a book for adults because we still have this, you know, a bit of a prejudice in Australia that graphic novels are for kids, mm. but they aren't. They're, they're a genre like film. They can range from all kinds of topics. Um, and so I'm naked on the cover in the hope that it will scare children away. <laughs> Melbourne's own Triple R. Sarah, what I wanted to ask you next um, sort of speaks to, well, I suppose what you were just talking about. Um, the graphic essay is, it's not something that we see published, uh, we don't see a lot of them published in Australia. And I wanted to know a little bit about what inspired that as a form and perhaps when you knew it was possible or valid as a form for publication in Australia. Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. Um, I feel like Australia isn't very familiar with adult graphic novels, even though there's a very long history of powerful and amazing graphic novels like um, Mouse by Art Spiegelman that won a Pulitzer ages ago and like um, Persepolis, um, you know, really important kind of political works. Um, so I guess I've always known that that's possible. Um, but... In trying to pitch this book to publishers, I did get a lot of rejections because basically it was like, there is no market for this. Your book is weird. What is it trying to do? We can't sell it. Um, so I actually almost gave up on this book uh, and I like went away to the mountains and like was chopping wood and getting ready to like let it go because it you know been years of trying to pitch it and it just wasn't happening. Um, but then, you know, sort of like breaking through the clouds was this sunlight that was Nikia Louie who had wanted to put together this imprint um, with Alan and Unwin, the imprint's called Joan Press that's named after her grandmother. And her vision is to create a space for books that are different and that could be different in stories, different in format, different in um, the stories of being told. And she loved it. And I just don't know that without her, this book would exist. So I just like cannot thank her enough for getting on board with my weird, wonderful book. Thanks, Nikia. <laughs> um, and I just think that, yeah, like in Australia, having strong champions like that that are willing to take risks that are, you know, not not clear where it will be marketed and how it will be marketed um, is really valuable. Um, and in regards to medium, like I'm just a person who writes and draws at the same time. Um, and so it's just what comes naturally to me. And I think part of that is... Um, I have aphantasia, which is I don't have mental images. So if you say, imagine a beach, I don't have a picture of a beach in my mind. I just have like the sound of the beach and the feeling of the sand and this kind of thing. So when I write and draw, I'm very often trying to kind of mirror my brain to try and see what I'm thinking. Um, and part of why I visualize is that is because I have a, I, I'm just a, a guessing, but I have an absence of mental pictures. So I draw to see what I'm thinking. If that makes sense. Yeah, it yeah. does. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Uh, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit about 
delight and the role that it plays in your sort of writing and drawing process. Sure can. Um, Lots of people might be familiar with a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron that's a kind of... um, it's almost a spiritual 12-week course of how to get unblocked as an artist and in it um, there's this thing called morning pages where you write three pages of stream of consciousness in the morning and also a thing called artist dates where you take yourself out on a nice date kind of imagining that you're taking your inner child to do something fun Um, and so for me that kind of artist date idea was really important to me as a way to you sort of fill up my creative well um so for example i did an artist date yesterday where i took myself on a walk and i got a gong cha uh pearl milk uh tea uh bubble tea um and just sat and just really enjoyed drinking it and then went back to work um just little it's it's very cute it's it's very naff like some people might not like it but I find for me just taking these little moments to do a little delightful nice thing uh, means a lot to me and also just looking for it I mean as I say in my book I get a lot of delight from looking at dogs Mm -hmm. like I just go to the dog park and I look at dogs and I squeal (laughs) because they're funny little weirdos and I love them Um, but yeah there's all these little moments and glimmers everywhere and I feel like given how um, stressful and terrible things are um, in the world at the moment um, having little windows and glimmers are really important to keep your morale up, I guess. Mm. So I take it quite seriously is what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in that spirit, something that absolutely delighted me when I was reading this book was reading about the mating habits of slugs. Oh, yeah. Um, tell us, for, for those who don't know, Sarah, could you, could you enlighten us? Yeah, so um, this is very specific to tiger slugs. Um, so... You know, they're a very unassuming, some people would say quite ugly slug, um, but they have the most like almost alien and beautiful, mysterious mating habit where two slugs will climb up to a very, very high point, uh, entwine each other for a very long time, kind of kissing, and then they'll make a big mucus string <laughs> that goes down like 30 centimetres and it's like glowing and then they'll um, sort of circle each other some more and then these giant flappy iridescent vagina penises come out of their heads because they're hermaphrodites so they have both sex organs and they unravel like a big glowing blue rose and they do that for a while and then they finish and they very unceremoniously just drop off onto the ground plop and off they go but it is one of the most sort of surreal alien magical looking things that if you ever get to see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. You can even Google it. Just go um, leopard slug mating. And how did you learn about this? How did this oh, find David its Attenborough. way? David Attenborough, of course. And how does it find its way into your essay collection? Um, because to me, it's yet another marvellous, strange, uh, very ordinary thing that's around us all the time that we often don't see that is going on that can sort of make you fall in love again with the magical strangeness of things existing. Yeah, which I think is I I think is the central driving message that I took away from this text is oh, to good. to tune in the, to the things that are around you and to ask questions and to bask wholeheartedly, you know, in the answers and in the in the process of finding the answers. Yes, to me it's very much there's I think it's a Rilke quote which is um, you know, about living into the questions rather than trying to find answers, but to just live into the questions and that's a journey that probably never ends. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good, I I think that's a pretty good answer for what a life is, what a worthwhile (laughs) life is. Um, Sarah, you were not 
always a graphic artist. You were originally a sculptor yes. and a car accident changed that yes. for you. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, in the same the same spirit of sort of leaning into the questions, um, how I, – I suppose I'm asking you a question about – how to move and change as life moves and changes upon you. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, that was a early interesting experience. You know, we all have these experiences in our lives where we, you know, want to go in a certain direction, but then a curveball comes and we go in a different direction and we then need to choose what, what will we do with that. Um, and, it, you know, there's always a process of grieving and recalibrating um, and it can be very hard and, you know, every end is also a beginning and it's, you know, it takes time. Um, but, yeah, for me I was training to um, – I, I had trained to be a classical sculptor. I was um, going to become a welder for carriage works in Sydney and do theatre stuff. So it was like a big, you know, exciting thing. And, like, my grandfather had been a trained carriage worker there at Carriage Works, you know, so it felt like – you know, oh, yes, it's the family. Um, and then, yeah, I had this really bad car accident and I couldn't walk um, for six months and was in bed and I had um, uh, acquired brain injury and I lost short-term memory. So it was a lot of stuff that was very, um, really difficult. And I was young and I, you know, when you're a bit younger, you can feel not invincible, but just, you know, young. And it was just a big knock that made me go, okay, Oh, what am I going to do now? And it was literally the lim limitations of being in bed that I sort of picked up the pen and started drawing. Also because of the um, memory loss, I needed to leave lots of notes. So I'd draw notes to remind myself of what I was trying to do and things like that. Um, and basically to just entertain myself and also express myself, I journaled a lot. I started making little animations, uh, drawing little cartoons, and um, that sort of just developed over time into basically what I do now and comics compared to sculpture is much more efficient and mm. easy so that's great um so I love that um but you know I'm a little bit tempted to explore sculpture again mm. so we'll see what happens yeah wow watch this space <laughs> um now tell us something else that you are um that you delight in and that occupies your time and that perhaps has led or informed your writing practice and perhaps has not is um your your Olympic weightlifting can you tell us can you tell us about it yes so I sometimes get um funny men messaging me on the internet saying Olympic weightlifting you're not good enough to be an Olympic weightlifter and I have to say Olympic weightlifting is the technical name of the style of weightlifting that I do your goose <laughs> So, um, yes, basically it is a very dynamic kind of weightlifting. A lot of AFL players do it as a um, conditioning sport because it helps you to be able to jump very high, so it's very explosive. Um, and it as a practice, quite unexpectedly, I find it to be very helpful for my nervous system, for stress, um, and I guess it's related to riding in the way that, like, running is related to riding, mm -hmm. sort of having these spaces where you're not thinking, you're in the body, um, can allow ideas and things to emerge that don't emerge if you're looking at something too directly. Uh, so it's almost meditative to me because it's slightly dangerous. You do have to really focus and not overthink and just be there in your body. And I find that it gives me a lot of um, clarity and um, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's related to writing, but I don't quite know how. It's, it sounds to me like kind of what you're describing is that, that sort of sense of transcendent time where you, you know, you're concentrating hard on something else. Yeah. And it, 
you described it as being explosive where it kind of cracks something open and allows things to happen. Yeah, yeah. And I think also that um, it's a discipline that's very disciplined and routine and I think that having something like that when you're trying to do a difficult creative work that's very messy um, can be important because it sort of keeps you regular. (laughs) It sounds really boring, (laughs) but, you know, I love it. So Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Uh, Sarah Firth is the author of Everything Eventually Connects, eight essays on uncertainty. Sarah, you will be launching your fantastic book at the Science Gallery. Why are we launching the book here? What's the significance? Yeah, so I love Science Gallery because it is a dedicated space for science and art. Um, And my book is very science communication heavy, I guess. Um, And it's just a kind of interface that I love exploring myself and seeing other people explore. Science Gallery is also a great space. Um, And also I love the Dark Matters exhibition that's on right now. Um, So it's in conjunction with CERN, so the Hadron Collider um, Dark Matter Investigations. And I think something like only 16% of you know, the universe is actually matter. The rest of it is dark matter and we don't know what dark matter is. And to me, that's such a profoundly strange kind of mystery of life. Um, And so it just felt like a really fitting place to have a launch um, and it will be big and celebratory and myself and a couple of friends have been working very hard, very secretively on a very special uh, comedy dance routine to kick off the night. (laughs) Uh, Sarah's book is an absolute wonder for anyone who wants to lean into the questions. This is a book for people who have arguments about the way to cut oranges, who delight in the the manner of copulation of tiger slugs, who are curious about why they're addicted to their phone or how they can lead a better life. Thank you so much for being on the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. It's been a real treat. Triple R. Um, I have a little correction to make. I need to fact-check myself. Huge apologies to Sarah Firth. I had been foolishly calling her book Everything Eventually Connects. It's Eventually Everything Connects. I switched the E words around, so very, very sorry to Sarah Firth. Eventually Everything Connects is the title of her fantastic book. Please do pick up a copy. It's now time for me to introduce my second guest to Literati Glitterati. Elise Esterhurst is a Melbourne-based playwright and author working on Boon Country. One day We're All Going to Die is her first novel about a 27-year-old Jewish woman who is just trying to be normal and please everyone. Welcome to the show, Elise. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, it's an absolute pleasure. We're so stoked that you are here. Um, This is a novel that is very much about identity. Um, It's about about someone trying to figure out who they are in relationship to... Sorry, in relation to their Jewishness, in relation to their family, in relation to their workplace and their romantic life. Can you tell us a little bit about your lead character, Naomi, um, where she is at the start of the novel and sort of what she's reckoning with? Sure. Naomi is, as you say, 27, which I guess, you know, is like Saturn Returns time. It's mm-hmm. when <laughs> it's when uh, some people start to feel the pressure of what they're doing with their life in terms of career and, and in terms of relationships. And Naomi is feeling all of that very acutely and, uh, you know, she has, she has a lot of um, expectations 
placed on her by family, whether or not they expressly say them to her or it's implied. Mm. Um, but she is has kind of taken all of that on and really, you know, wants to do the right thing, be a good girl, whatever that means. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, life is not that straightforward. So we kind of follow her on her journey of discovery and how she negotiates all these different uh, things, pulling and pushing her in her life. Yeah, all of these competing demands. Yeah. Um, my, uh, I noticed that the, the book is dedicated to your parents and also to your grandmother. Yeah. Um, they are also all central characters in Naomi's life, particularly Cookie, who is Naomi's grandmother. Can you tell us a little bit about a little bit about Cookie and, and her relationship with Naomi? Yeah, I just think I wanted to capture that unique and special bond between grandparents and grandchildren. Um, in particular for Naomi, you know, her her grandmother who she is very bonded with. And I think that's made possible because of that gap, that distance, you know, not being the child of uh, someone, in this case a Holocaust survivor, but being the grandchild of one, you, you by virtue of that, are the recipient of your, all your grandparents' love and, and in my case anyway, mm. <laughs> and tenderness and uh, kind of, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's, it's not the same necessarily for, for the child of that person because, you know, maybe they will put all their um, their pain and their suffering kind of funnel that into their children of wanting them to be best and and make up for maybe what was lost whereas I think with a grandchild you have that you have more of that freedom um, to just love <laughs> without condition and in particular for Naomi that's that's the bond that she has with her grandmother so yeah I wanted to honor that honour that relationship, uh, which I ex was lucky enough to experience in my own life, which is why I dedicated the book to my grandmother, who really was, she, I, I started writing it just after she died. So it's no coincidence that she is there. I feel like her voice was in my ear. She was talking to me the whole way through the writing of it. Oh, I love that you said that, because I think that one of the many great strengths of this novel is... Um, other voices, the way that you write dialogue, there are these fantastic, colourful, cacophonous scenes like where the family's together and people are sort of talking on top of each other <laughs> and they're saying half sentences and they're not entirely listening to each other because they're driven by their own wants and desires and shame and all of these kinds of things. But it's captured so perfectly and, and I was thinking about... Um, you as a writer and as a playwright as well and how those two forms work together can you could you speak to that for us a little bit yeah I guess as a playwright with my experience I you know I, I really I really think and create through character and very much from hearing those voices so those voices were so alive in my head and you know finessing them into a scene where they're all talking to each other and not necessarily listening um is, is part of the fun but I guess part of my strength as a playwright is always is also like being able to envision what that actually looks like mm. the fact that people don't let other people finish their sentences or um yeah have competing agendas so uh 
Yeah, I can. I think I'm thinking of the scene that you're. You might one of the scenes you might be referring to, um, which is like a Shabbat dinner where, mm. <laughs> where yeah, Na- Naomi is kind of it's her birthday and <laughs> yeah, every every everyone has got their own shit going on and <laughs> and uh, no one is really just saying what they mean. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful stuff. Um, can I ask you? I mean, this is your this is your first novel. Why? Why did this one, why a novel for this one? Why was that the right form, do you think? When Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It, it was one of those things where I just, I, I really felt it and I wanted to challenge myself. And once I'd given myself permission to go, okay, this is not a play, this is a novel, I didn't necessarily know, you know, how the novel was going to develop, who the characters were, what was what was going to happen um but I just I just I just ran with it and uh and I I think I backed myself that I could do it (laughs) that's but that's as far as as far as I went you know I I I yeah it was it was quite random I just had this real urge to tell this story and I think I wanted to do it through the form of a novel because it felt liberating to me to just to not have to think of any of those you know constraints that you have when when you're working in theatre um being able to imagine imagine a world make it as large or as small as you wanted and have that kind of the minutiae of detail that you know you can't have necessarily if you're telling a story in an hour and a half yeah so it was just it was fun and playful and liberating for me in that way not that I don't love love theater as well and and that that has that you know that has that amazing kind of collaborative magic that can only happen in theatre when you have all these different brains working together and coming together to realise a world, uh, whereas this is really kind of a – it's a solo project. You're doing all that work. You know, of course, I had amazing input from from my publisher and editors, but, yeah, the, you really are the driver of that, of, a- that, of that world, what it looks like, what it feels like. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah, so, yeah, it was – I, I don't know. It just <laughs> important to have the time to stretch out and to and to tell the story the way that you wanted to and expansively. So yeah, I think so. I think that's a good point. It was about stretching it out, and that I didn't I didn't want to have you know restrictions around it. I wanted to really sit with it. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about the title? Mm. One day we're all going to die. Mm. It's direct. Mm. How did it come to you? <laughs> Why is that the one? I think uh, it it did it came from it came from you know a passage in the book that I'd been thinking a lot about, which is Naomi grappling with um, the idea of her you know falling for a person who was not Jewish and what were the implications for her, mm. especially considering that you know you know her she knew that her her grandmother's family were murdered during the holocaust and that her parents had kind of given her worked incredibly hard to provide her with opportunity education um and all of the, all of these things and kind of a, a very kind of embracing community mm-hmm. uh what are the implications if if she then kind of marries out is the term that is often used um you know what are the implications for her or for her family and she was just trying to figure it out and talking to her grandmother and she kind of realizes you know at the end at the end of the day we are all going to die and we're all going to go into the earth and 
she, she with that in mind it was kind of a comfort to her mm. <laughs> which is quite in a way could be seen as bleak or <laughs> positive or just um pragmatic so yeah that's kind of how the how the title how the title came to me um I think that it is direct it's funny it's shocking but I think all of those things are really pertinent to a to a story a Jewish story because often our stories are marked by humor and immense sadness you know we are a people who who have lived for you know you know since time you know, for the last 2,000 years or whatever, sorry, mm. history people, um, you know, no, knowing that, at, you know, at any point what we have is not secure and could be taken away. Well, that's, the, that's you know, that's especially growing up in a Holocaust survivor community like I did in Melbourne. You you are raised with that front of mind, which which is sad, but it's, it's just, it is how it is. So I think we need to, you know, it's like honouring life, honouring death, honouring that that is part of who we are. And maybe that's one of also, you know, the strengths, the strengths of, you know, being from this culture where we do speak to death. Mm. And I think a, a lot of us struggle with that. I'm not saying I don't struggle with that. I really do. Um, but I, I think it's a strength to... Yeah, so I'm I it it's yeah, so that's that's the title. It wasn't always that title, but <laughs> I think yeah, it sort of speaks to a kind of it's almost like um a joyous existentialism or something. It's like if we are going to die and we are, <laughs> yeah. you have to live in the moment and take what you want, which is an extraordinary sort of discovery for someone like Naomi, I think, mm. who who at the beginning of the book when we meet her, we think that, I think she thinks that giving people what they want and being a good person are the same thing and part of what is really difficult for her is she has to reconcile that she cannot give people what they want <laughs> all the time and that, that is not, it's not a simple process and that it's not... Um, you know, particularly in some of the relationships that she develops with people, mm. um, they do not have her best interests at heart, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think, you know, like that's a lesson that that we that we all have to learn. Again you know, and, and again. <laughs> and I think especially, you know, as 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 a woman you, you know you 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 are kind of as a, you, girls are girls are raised to 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 please others and um to nurture and to care and what 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 does it mean to kind of break out of that or break away from that or to you know to reflect on that Absolutely. Um, so much of those discoveries are explored through Naomi's relationship with a colleague at work. Mm. Um, it's, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away for people who are listening, but it is, um, it's a toxic one and mm -hmm. it has some pretty big implications for Naomi and for her life. Um, can you tell us a bit about, um, you know, Naomi is working at a Jewish museum. She's um, a young curator. She loves her job. And all of that is kind of called into question because of this relationship.